Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is May the 16th, 2019. This is episode 2440, 2440 of the Survival Podcast. And I'll tell you what, we're going to have a good show today because it's all driven by you, the listeners of the podcast, by making your calls to the Think Line at 866-65-THINK, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K, because we encourage you to think. For calls uh, for shows like this, you can either use the Think Line or you can use the Speak Pipe. How do you use the Speak Pipe? Well, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Contact, and you'll see a button there for the Speak Pipe. You mash that button, leave me your message. It will come to me through the magic of the interwebs. If you call the Think Line, it's kind of the same thing. It'll sound like an old school answering machine. On that note, I put out a post on Facebook today. Not anything important, just something I thought would be fun. Seems to be going pretty well. I did this on my personal page, not the business page or the Facebook uh, forum page uh, group. We, we just did this on my personal page. I just thought, people under 30 will never understand blank. You want to get on by Facebook and look me up, you can play that game with us. Lots of stuff there. Trying to be nice about it. Just things have changed. In fact... My hope with that, I know this is kind of going off script here a little bit, even though I don't have a script, but off of, I don't know, normal plans. Um, my hope with this is, as we play this game throughout today and probably into tomorrow before it kind of fizzles out, is not, hey, look at all the things these people don't know about. Hey, look at all the things that we used to think we needed that have been replaced with new technology. We that are in our 40s, 50s, and 60s have witnessed... Uh, transition of technology that is unlike anything that's ever happened in in the world. Honestly, the closest thing would be people that lived in the the, the early post antebellum, right after the Civil War, up into the early 1900s, like that 30, 40 year block in there. That that was radical change, the likes of which at that time no one had ever seen before. But if you think about it today. Uh, kids today, you know, I say kids, people under 30 today probably don't even, they know what it is, but they don't use a calculator like we mean the word. And many of them never have. Why would you need a calculator? You have an app for that on your phone. That's just one example. A-track tapes, cassette tapes. How about reel-to-reel tapes? Uh, there's so many things that have changed. How about running really fast because mom told you uncle or aunt so-and-so was on the phone And that meant they were calling dun-dun-dun long distance. In fact, it's the beginning of the show. Let's have a little fun. Let's check in on the game and see how it's going right now, what some people had to say. Wow, I, well, I know people like this kind of thing because it's uh, been up for about five minutes, and uh, it's got 38 comments already. But here's uh, what Craig says. Vacuum tube testing stations at the front of grocery stores, markets. Those used to be things we put in our TVs, folks. Uh, picking up soda bottles to pay for your candy and comic books addiction. Uh, 24-hour photo huts, flash cubes, and 110 film. Rushing to get your rental movies back to Blockbuster before they clode, closed. Uh, never enjoy going Friday night trips to Blockbuster for movie nights. Um, family dinner with no technology. Uh, pressing 6 and 14 at the same time to get the Playboy channel to come on. Um, let's see. Smoking in the grocery store. I think we can do that. that. 
uh, pre-blockbuster and VCRs. Oh, so not just VCRs, but before there, VCRs before there was a blockbuster. Hitting the restroom and running back to the living room when the commercials were done. A track tapes and telephone answering machines. Memorizing phone numbers. I, I responded to that one from Josh and said, how about giving a school friend a four-digit number because everyone had the same prefix and you didn't use area codes when you made a phone call? Uh, candy cigarettes? Penny candy and just how much a quarter would buy. Corded phones. Car phone suitcases. Ah, those, yeah, the big ones, right? Sugar water and wax bottles. Oh, I remember those candies. That's from a guy named Joe. Sugar water and wax bottles. Remember they chew those things? Button candies on paper, wax lips, wiener whistles. Looking out the car window on long trips, going out to play, library research, encyclopedias, and manual transmissions. Not being confused about what bathroom to use by merely checking between your legs. Uh, waiting six weeks for my skateboard ordered from the from Thrasher. Yeah, waiting for things is something that's yeah not really a thing anymore. Remember they used to have like these infomercials. This is a little side note. Side note on a side note. Back in the day, we used to have these uh, these infomercials that would come on. You know, they weren't like the long thirty minute ones after cable, but like late night TV. There's a two one to two minute commercial, and they would advertise like a, um, a group of albums or tapes or something like that, or some product that was going to change your life. And you waited six to eight weeks to get it. You know what that was? That was the 70s and 80s versions of Kickstarter. Those products didn't exist. They advertised them. Then they got your money, and they used your money to produce the product and send it to you. That's why you'd wait six to eight weeks. The joy of opening a mailbox and finding the best merchandise catalogs. Oh, like the Sears catalog. Remember, that thing was like a phone book. How about phone books? and uh, waiting more than 10 minutes for a response to anything. So that'll keep going. But if you want to come by and play that game, come on by. I just, you know, as so we're getting toward the end of a week, it's a Thursday, not a Friday, just think about how lucky we really are, how much we really have. Because modern survivalism is not about preparing for the end of the world. It's about building resiliency into your life. And we have some pretty amazing lifestyles today. But that's a good reason to build resiliency into it because things can and do go wrong. What are we going to talk about today? I got a question. It's about state troopers in Pennsylvania. It's not a negative thing, really. But I'm going to, I'm going to boil it down to this. It's, it's really about moving to a rural area where you're dealing with rural law enforcement of whatever kind your state has versus typical suburban urban law enforcement, something that I actually have right here as close as I am to Fort Worth. Uh, the way that it's handled. And I'll talk about an analogy that will make a lot of sense for people who maybe won't understand this question because it involves Pennsylvania. Uh, fire considerations with a multi-story home, especially a three-story home, maybe the kids are sleeping on the third floor. Uh, some considerations with underground structures. We talked about, you know, can you bury an aircraft structure? And I said, I probably wouldn't. But this guy is an engineer. He called and he said, one of the things you need to think about when you bury anything is buoyancy. We'll talk about that and some things I've seen happen that ain't good. Uh, keeping up with technology at your job when your position isn't tech heavy. I talked about a lot about the need, if you want to stay resilient in your careers, to stay uh, current with technology. And this is an interesting way of looking at it. How can you apply the problem is the solution, famous permaculture principle, to government? It's more than one way. More than one way. We'll talk about a few of them. Concerns about CBD and drug testing. Something happened to a listener that I feel really bad about, even though it's not my fault. I still feel bad about it. 
uh, with drug testing at their work environment when they were using CBD. Uh, and we'll talk about how to avoid that, which means pretty much avoiding CBD if you're in that potential situation. Uh, the Ruger American Rifle Series, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I got a question on getting citrus, citrus flavor into ciders and meads without screwing them up. So it'll be a good show. We'll be getting to all of that and more in just a minute. Before we do, I want to remind you about the Member Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show and the work that we do. No, you know, and, and it really is a good deal. And the reason it's a good deal is because you get discounts to a lot of vendors. So I want to start doing something on Thursdays uh, with MSB to kind of support our supporting vendors. There's over 70 companies that support us in the MSB by giving you guys discounts. 70 plus. Uh, I only have positions for 12 sponsors. Most of the sponsors do something. You hear about the sponsors all the time, but what about these other 60-odd companies that support this show and make the fact that I can do this show really possible? Because the main way that I fund this show is by MSB. If I don't have MSB, I can't pay my bills. i got to go do something else. And one of the main reasons you guys are willing to support MSB is not just because you like the show, but because the MSB can put money back in your pocket. So I thought it might be a good idea once a week to at least bring up one of these companies to you guys and tell you a little bit about them and remind you about them. Today's is GunAdapters.com. I love these guys, man. You take a single-shot shotgun and you pop a gun adapter in it, next thing you know you're shooting 38 Special, 9mm, 45 uh, ACP, 45 Long Colt, uh, 22. I mean, they have adapters to let you shoot just about anything that's safe to shoot in a shotgun out of a shotgun, even if it's a rifle round. they got little bitty short ones that are only about 3 inches long, about as big as a shot shell themselves. And they got longer ones that have rifle twists to them. So they're, you know, eight inches long or longer even that are pretty damn accurate. I've had a lot of fun playing with them. And uh, one of the cooler things in them is things like, well, you can get an adapter so that you can shoot, let's say, 20-gauge in a 12-gauge or even, let's say, 410 in a 12-gauge. Why would you want to do that? Well, maybe you're Jack Spearco and you like to pop some doves out of the air in dove season. They fly right over the flyway in your backyard, but... You know, the 12 gauge is well, boom, and the 410 is pa. Maybe you just want to do that, and you got your little lightweight 20 inch barrel uh, 12 gauge single shot, and it's just kind of fun and different to be able to do that. So, there's all kinds of cool things you can do with gun adapters. They give you guys a 10% discount on all their stuff, and they're in the benefits section of the MSB. So, if you've never checked out gun adapters, you might want to do that, even if you're not an MSB member. If you're just a person that listens to the show and the MSB's not for you, um, you know, hey, there's probably a reason you listen, and things like gun adapters is probably why, so check them out. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into our calls today. Call one on rural versus suburban law enforcement uh, from a Pennsylvania angle that involves state troopers. Hey, Jack, what's the difference between being policed by uh, state troopers or local city governments? Uh, backstory is I'm Dennis Allen, the cityboyhomesetter.com, um, and I'm used to being in cities where we always had local police and the state troopers uh, in New Jersey were always the ones that pretty much just stuck around the highways, uh, state roads, things like that, and had more authority than the regular local police. Out here in central Pennsylvania, we do not have local police, um, but we are... The only people that we could call for help or anything is a state trooper. It takes about 30 minutes to get to us on average. Um, but, yeah, what's the real difference between being governed by them or by local authorities? Thanks, and love what you do. 
All right, so my initial uh, reaction to this was, I did just throw this to Steve Wise, our, our retired law enforcement officer, but I started thinking about it, and he's out of Georgia. And Georgia works a lot more like Texas when it comes to what sheriffs do. And Pennsylvania doesn't, at least now. And there's there's been some talk of changing some things, my understanding. And I realize that having grown up in Pennsylvania, I might actually have a little more insight to the background mechanics of why state troopers are doing that job in Pennsylvania than Steve might. I'm sure he's had to work interstate before with some of the stuff that he's done. But generally speaking, if you are a, a, a police detective in Atlanta, the majority of your work involves Georgia, Georgia law, and, and working with other Georgia law enforcement organizations. So here's the deal. In Texas, if you live in a place like you're talking about, in Arkansas, in, in Georgia, in a lot of states, in fact, most states, I'm not sure which ones are the exceptions other than Pennsylvania having lived there, but in most states, when you're in that type of an area where there's no township cop, there's no city cop, there's nothing like that, then you're going to have the sheriff's department for the county handle day-to-day -day law enforcement And that'd be anything from criminal investigations to serving warrants to writing up a report for your insurance company when your place got broken into, uh, to staking out drug houses. Whatever law enforcement does inside these areas that are outside of cities and townships where they don't have their own municipal police force, in general, again, I'm not speaking for every state, the sheriff's department fills that role. In the state of Pennsylvania, a sheriff is not like a sheriff in Texas. They do have full arrest authority within their county. One of the things that they don't have the authority to do is to investigate crimes. So what do they do? Well, a sheriff in, in you know, whether it's a, the actual sheriff or a sheriff's deputy, whatever, in Pennsylvania generally handles things like serving warrants, Uh, whether they be for arrest or for other, like to appear in court, uh, serving restraining orders, dealing with domestic situation. Yeah, the cops show up for the domestic situation, but if one partner goes and gets a restraining order on the other, they'll come out and issue the restraining order. Uh, picking up people who skipped bail but are not being picked up by a bail enforcement agent. So we don't need a bail enforcement agent. We, Tommy was put out on bail. We know where Tommy lives. And somebody needs to go pick Tommy up and take his ass back to jail. Sheriffs will do that. But they don't have the authority to investigate a crime. Now, if you think about that, that's why they're not going to be sent out to your house when you have a problem in your, your area. Because you said it takes them 30 minutes to get there. Well, if it takes them 30 minutes to get there or it takes them 10 minutes to get there, 99% of the time when police show up, if there was a crime, again, if there was a crime, the crime's already occurred. And often the person that committed the crime isn't there at that point. They've, they've run off, they've stabbed a guy and killed him and run off and left him there lying, or they punched him in the face, took his wallet, ran off, they broke into your house. You get home and uh, your house was broken into and you call the police. You don't know if anybody's in there or not. They come in, they clear the house, tell you it's clear. They give you a report to file with your insurance company. Even though a lot of these crimes are not investigated, the responding officers make a determination of whether it warrants investigation or whether it, it meets a pattern that fits an existing investigation. So maybe if there's a burglary in your home that's small enough that local law enforcement basically, you know, if, it, if we find your shit in a pawn shop or something, 
yeah, but this is like we don't have the resources to actually do this, and it happens all the time. But if there's been a rash of burglaries and they all have a certain signature, and even though it's not a lot of money or there's nothing involved guns or explosives or something like that, where it normally wouldn't be investigated, well, now we're invested because now it meets a pet. Now this is not an isolated incident. In all of those situations, is discretion of the officers, their supervisors, etc., whether or not to follow forward with an investigation. If you have a person in custody who allegedly committed a crime, there has to be an investigation to be handed off to a prosecutor to prosecute him. So if you have a sheriff's department that doesn't have the authority to do that, they can't be a highly responsive organization to law enforcement requests. They just kind of are there. They kind of fit in the same sort of kind of way place that constables do in Texas. So what that means is now you don't have a township cop. You know, it just falls to the next level of authority. And in, in, in Pennsylvania, it just happens to be state troopers. So that's the why. Now, what about the what? what How's the difference? This is what I've found, having lived in places where law enforcement is a city cops or uh, big city departments with a large department, small, where I, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, we did have a, what we called a township police officer. And he had a huge area, but he was a local police officer. And likewise, though, down in Minersville, in the actual city, there was a small police force. Pottsville had a larger police force, that type of thing, that were more of your conventional city law enforcement. In general, I'm not saying it's everywhere. In general, I have found state-level and county-level law enforcement to be less intrusive into the lives of the average person and less concerned with nitpicky bullshit and if they do have to come out because some neighbor complained about something or whatever, they want it. They want it put to bed. They don't want to send code for. They don't want to do shit except what the hell am I doing out here? Is this actually a problem? And if it isn't, can't y'all settle it like adults? They don't tend to be big on now. The state troopers obviously out on the highway are running speed traps, but I bet you're not going to have the state troopers running speed traps down on your little your little township roads and stuff like that. They just generally are easier to deal with, and yet they seem to me, in my limited exposure, to be more concerned when there's a legitimate crime about doing something about it. Just, uh, again, I realize that may not always be the case. This even happens here in Texas with handoffs. A few years ago, I had a wreck. We were in the middle of Jabip. And state trooper came out and held scene on the accident until the county sheriff's officer was able to get there and then actually handle the follow-up of the accident. So in all states, you'll have some level of interaction with them. What does it mean for you? Probably nothing. I mean, I, I have covered abuses by law enforcement here. You guys know that I think that that is one of the most reprehensible things when an officer abuses their authority uh, it is disgusting. But in general, people that tell me that they always have problems with the police, generally, in, in you know, 99% of the time, are the cause of their own problems. So what it probably means for you is as long as you're not that kind of person, you're not going to see very much of them. And what it does mean is you're going to be on your own more so than is always the case. You're always on your own. Even if you have the best-intentioned officers... With the fastest response rates, if somebody breaks into your house at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're on your own until they get there, and it's plenty of time for people to die. 
you just have that longer wait. And so it doesn't really matter that it's state troopers. It doesn't really matter that they're sheriffs. It just matters that they're not going to be there as much. Now, I, I don't want to be too nasty. I ain't lived in Pennsylvania for a long time. In general, when I've dealt with state police in Pennsylvania, they kind of have that super trooper mentality. Um, not my favorite group of law enforcement officers in general. I actually knew one that was outstanding. He was a family friend, uh, and he he was a good guy. So there's good and bad everywhere, but I, w I wouldn't want to see him any more than you have to. It's just how I feel about it. That's Now, if anybody knows that I got anything wrong there because I'm going on dated information, please let me know. With that, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Jason from PA. And very soon I'm going to be moving into a new property that's three stories high. And I have a few small children from 8 to 12. And probably my biggest concern is, you know, fire safety. I mean, it's one of the more common disasters that hits, you know, homes and families and, um, you know, both looking at the short-term affordable ways to ensure that my children can get down from the third and the second floor, more long-term things like permanent fire, you know, escape-type things, metal, bar, you know, metal ladders, um, but also just general home safety. I mean, I've heard that accidents that have occurred where ovens have caught on fire and they couldn't reach the fire extinguisher because it was kept right next to the oven. And I didn't know if we, you know, had really discussed this or if we even had any expert counsel people who were, you know, former firemen who might be able to come on and do a show on fire safety from, you know, the home perspective. So a few things here. Um, number one, if it was me, I would always want, if I thought fire was a real concern, to keep my kids on the lowest floor possible. Uh, so if I had a choice between second and third floor, I'd kind of opt for the second. Um, just making it easier in, in the instance that without your assistance, they do need to go out a window or something. The lower you are, the more likely they are to, uh, to be able to do it. Uh, next up, whatever your solution for getting off a higher floor without going downstairs is, make sure they're capable. Make sure that they're able to do it and make it fun when you do it so they're not afraid, but let's have them use it. Let's have them use it so if they ever have to, they've done it before. Um, I mean, by the time they're teenagers, they're probably sneaking out of the second and third floor windows anyway on you, and they'll know how to do it then. But when they're younger, you got to figure out like how this is going to happen. The biggest hole in fire preparedness that people lack is an actual plan. You should have a plan for how the hell you're going to get out under each possible contingency and definitely a rallying point once you get out of the house. Where is everybody going to go to, to get back together? Because some of the most horrible tragedies I've heard of, and I've heard of a couple times this has happened, that a family has a fire and they all get out different ways and they don't find each other. You know, one runs off to the neighbors and the other one, because they don't find the family member, thinks the family member's in the house, they go into the fire trying to help and they end up succumb to smoke and die or get seriously injured. And I know of two individual cases that I've been written about where that exact thing happened. And the concept there, and this is something, I mean, back before preparedness was crazy, you know, in the 70s when we were kids, they, I mean, we taught, we were taught that in school. 
that you have to have a place that everybody gets together whenever there's an emergency or disaster or something like that, a rallying point. So that's one of the big things. Um, definitely smoke. Smoke alarms are so cheap, you know, and I guess the only downside of smoke alarms is you get the ones with the dying battery and a chirp every 30 seconds and you can't get rid of it. So make sure you have extra batteries for your smoke alarms because uh, I've actually heard of one person throwing a smoke alarm out a window and then there was a fire that night. It ended up another smoke alarm went off. But, yeah, I, I understand. Uh, I've been in that situation with the cheap, you know, and you, you take the bat, and it still has, like, this residual battery, and it won't go away, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and, yeah, I get it. But it could, you know, you never know when. That's why you have them. Um, I think making sure that areas are clear uh, so that you can get through them. I think that it's not, it's not excessive, fire or no fire, to truly memorize your floor plan, your house, where things are. I think we all kind of naturally do this over time, but I don't think it's even excessive to, at times, maybe not the kids, but for mom and dad, other adult caretakers, shut all the lights off in the house and walk through the house. We're, we have limited but not no visibility. Um, having basic understanding of what to do and how, you know, I mean, if you're that worried about, you may want to think about breathing apparatuses and things like that. It is one of the more common things that occur, but this is the truth. The majority of fires that happen in homes do happen because of stupid behavior. There is, you know, the house that had old wiring, old wiring and it passed inspection and it shouldn't. And then, you know, a short happened and it, it caught on fire. Uh, we did have a fire recently here where the house was actually set on fire by lightning. In fact, we had two of those in the last round of storms that came through up north of us, two different houses uh, very close to each other but unrelated individual lightning strikes. So it can happen, but usually fires are started because someone was cooking, someone was smoking and left it burning. Um, there, there's a lot of things that cause fires that are generally human error, so we want to make sure that we eliminate those. The biggest thing that I've found is that in most instances where there is a fire, people do get out. And the, 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 then the problem is putting your life back together. And one of the things that everybody should do for theft, for fire, for storm, for anything that will involve you negotiating with people that you think are on your side that aren't known as insurance companies Everything of value in your home should be cataloged, including photographs, time of acquisition, estimated value, and replacement cost. Now, I think you can go too far with this. I'm sitting here in my office right now. I'm looking at a very old speaker for like cell phones and stuff like that, not even Bluetooth, made by a company called Goal Zero. When they were brand new, they were 20 bucks. They don't even make them anymore. I'm not going to put that in a catalog of things that we own with estimated value. Uh, I just think that like you can go too far with it. I even have a little like twenty dollar uh, f uh, fan, a little oscillating fan. So I, I I don't mean that, but anything that you would like, I really am going to need to replace this, um, you know, and put my life back together, or anything that's collectible. You just take a picture of it, um, and I would. I, here's what I would do: I would number that picture. Well, something like zero 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 one, right? Some kind of standard sequence is going to cover all your items and drop them in a spreadsheet, 
with um, you know a, a link to where that picture can be found somewhere online, whether it's iCloud or whether you have a server or whether you use whatever it is, and it's all in there, and then that needs to be cloud stored, uh, not on your hard drive that just burned up. And just keep up. Whenever there's something new that comes in the house or you think of something that should be on there, just take a picture of it, number that picture file the next number in the sequence, and throw it in Excel. And you can even do things like then put like category, so electronics, you know, jewelry, whatever. And that way you can sort your columns and, and, and find everything. And estimated value and replacement cost. How do you get estimated value? Um, you estimate the value based on what you paid for it, what it's worth to you. But the big thing is replacement cost. You know, you look up, well, what would it cost me right now to get something like this, similar even if they don't make the same thing, and throw it in there. And then that way, when you're trying to deal with your insurance company, you know everything you're dealing with. And lastly, the reason I even think this way is the show that we did on the aftermath of a fire. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But the gentleman that was on, they gave them immediately some money and got them set up to go to a hotel because they could not stay in their home. But there was still things left in their home. And they were told, you can't take the stuff out of your home. You can't take anything. They're going to board the house up because the insurance company has to come and figure out what's a loss and what isn't. And the company that was do the contracting company that was doing the work after the fire was out, like putting the boards up on the windows and stuff like that, where the fire department were, stole some of their remaining things, including their washer and dryer, which would have been salvageable, and, and quite a few other things. So having a plan to deal with that, and I would definitely recommend listening to this older episode about what to do if it happens as far as supervision of that process. Because, of course, what you're thinking is, my kids are okay, my wife's okay, whatever, and we're just going to go, you know what, we're just going to go for a freaking hotel, we're going to order room service, I'm going to have a freaking drink and try to figure out what to do with my life. And while you're doing that, the people that are supposed to help you are victimizing you. And, and that was one of the most disgusting examples of an abuse of power and abuse, abuse of position I've ever heard. So I'll make sure that's in the show notes, and, and those are my thoughts on that. Hopefully that's helpful. Hey, Jack. Mike here. Uh, I'm a structural engineer, uh, and I'm about a month behind on podcast. Uh, so I was listening to uh, about an underground structure, and I just have one thing to add about underground structures is that um, anytime you build anything below grade, you need to take uh, buoyancy into account. Um, one concern I would have with the aircrete structure underground is the lightweight material that you're building at out of. So self-weight of it actually helps you uh, because um, you just think of it like a boat. Uh, uh, you build a sealed structure underground, there's a water table, and you could potentially uh, float your structure out of the ground, and it happens actually often in many cases. So uh, that would be another major concern I'd have with uh, building an underground structure out of air green, just the lightweight nature of it and uh, the buoyancy effect if there's any kind of water table even Okay, so that, that call was not the best in audio quality, but I thought it was important enough to work with it. It cleaned it up as best I could, and it actually had several instances of a good 10 seconds of dead space in it where the guy cut out, and yet it still made sense. So I just went in and pulled out all that blank space and, and filtered it and cleared it up a little bit as I could because I wanted to throw an additional thing on top of it. So first of all, when someone called in about making an underground structure out of air creep, my response was you probably shouldn't, especially fully underground. If it's burned in, maybe. 
Uh, and and it's one of the things, a lot of the underground houses are more like they're burned in on one side, and then the front is open, and they're not really in the ground. And I, I think that earth contact approach maybe makes more, more sense. But when it comes to burying stuff, this is something that's really important. I'm going to tell you the number one thing I've seen have the problem he just explained, and that is tornado shelters. Prefab tornado shelters are usually made out of fiberglass, and they're a big, hollow, fiberglass thing. And I have seen them float uh, up out of the hole. I've even heard of one case where a family during a storm went into one. It floated, turned sideways, flooded, and the family died, locked in their shelter by drowning. And that is something that we need to be aware of. And I'm going to tell you that in the cases that I've been able to verify, this thing happened, whether somebody was in it or not. But this this thing floated up out of the ground. You know, something bad happened with it. In almost every instance, uh, either they used like a second-tier contractor or, you know, somebody got a hold of a backhoe and did it themselves. There's a right way and a wrong way to install those things. And if you're going to make that investment for your family's safety, a certified installer is the way to go there. Uh, and generally dealing with the company that you bought the item from is important. And I would ask the question, how do you make sure this thing doesn't happen? Uh, because imagine the tragedy that a family bought this thing so that they could survive a storm. And they went into it for that reason. The tornado that they were concerned about never hit, and then extended family finding out these, this family of four died of drowning trapped in their own shelter. So that is a concern that's specific, but I just want to reiterate the entire concept of burying anything that a human being is going to go inside of. You need to be damn sure that you know what the hell you're doing, or hire someone that does whenever we're talking about underground structures. Cave-in collapse is a real deal. Uh, even cave-in collapse that, that don't necessarily compromise the structure, but compromise the entrance, where now I cannot gain access in or out. Flooding, again, maybe it's not buoyancy. Maybe the damn thing stays under there. But what if it floods in and you drowned in it? Or you're not even in there, but all your stuff gets destroyed by water. When we put stuff in the ground, okay, it is not messing around, and people so underestimate the weight of earth, the weight of dirt. It is, it is very easy to underestimate, but all I want you to do is think about the last time that you picked up a good shovel full of dirt, a full shovel, not one of those half-assed shovels because a root knocked the dirt off, of loose, friable, somewhat moist soil, just on a, no a normal spade and how much that weighs. And when you throw that pile of dirt in to fill a hole, think about how little that first two or three shovels even does to make a difference. And then start adding that up and start thinking about, you know, pounds per square foot as we go up per inch of cover. And it starts to add up really, really fast. Um, we've talked about it before, but I'll throw it in here. This whole shit about I'm going to get me one of the metal shipping containers and bury it. There's ways to do it. By the time you did it, there was probably a better thing to bury. Um, and there's a lot of examples of people that did it 
that they caved in. Fortunately, I don't know of one where somebody had a cave-in while they were inside of it. I do know of two confirmed that caved in while they were burying it. Those containers are not meant to bear large amounts of weight on the sides, the roof, etc. They're designed to bear their weight on the corners. That's what they do. That's why they can stack six, seven, eight of them high, because they all line up and they stack on the corners. Don't bury a shipping container. Don't do it. And if you do do it, then it needs to be done in accompaniment with somebody that has very good structural engineering knowledge. I have seen it done successfully. Um, I don't know that they saved any money by using shipping containers by the time it was done successfully, though. There's one where they poured concrete roof and reinforced it and put two of them together, and it looks really cool, and I'm just like, I think you could have built that out of probably concrete as a whole and been better off. So be careful when you bury shit, especially if you're going to go inside it. Next one, let's talk about technology. Hi, Jack. Quick question. I've heard you talk a lot lately about keeping up with technology as technology changes ever more rapidly. And as someone who is in a technical field but is really more in an ownership-slash-management role, it's more and more difficult for me to keep up technically as, as more and more of my time is spent with business development or running the company and managing people. So uh, perhaps rather than getting into the gritty details of programming and modeling and automated drafting, uh, my technical advancements need to be in other areas. I wonder if you could speak to that a bit more, keeping up with technology as more of someone who runs a business, owns a business, or manages others. Thanks, Jack. Well, I, I hope that's how it's been taken. I, that's kind of what I meant. Um, obviously, if you are a, uh, a personnel manager uh, and your, your employees, for instance, are using specific specialized technologies that you don't even know, let alone use, uh, I mean, you can be a damn good uh, department head and have programmers in that department and not really know much about programming. It is important for you to know what is possible and what is not possible. And, you know, having a fundamental understanding of maybe like certain languages that are better for this than that or what have you, and at least be able to discuss it with those people and know if if you're expecting too much or if they're bullshitting you, because both of those things happen. It's why, you know, I think if you if you have experience as a mechanic, such as I do, uh, even though you don't sit there and, and, and do it every day and turn wrenches every day anymore, you know, when you go to the repair shop and they start telling you some bullshit about what your vehicle needs, you know that they're bullshitting you. Or if they start giving you some kind of like, uh, you know, we need to replace this part, you know when they're just trying to sell you more parts, right? And so... I think there's a big advantage there. But I think that when I say to stay abreast of technology, the technology that you use or could be expected to use in the future or technology that will enable you to transition into other uh, specialties or other roles should the need arise. And I think that's something a lot of people might need to understand that the technology wave that's coming, and I'm talking about more of AI and automation and stuff like that right now, is going to reduce headcount a great deal. So one of the groups of people that might think, well, it doesn't really affect me, are managers. Because, well, I manage people, and you know what? We're not going to have robots managing people anytime soon. Totally true. But let's say that I have a company, Jack Spirico Jerk Manufacturing, Inc., where we manufacture jerks for society. And I have a fairly large company, and I have basically set up the company with 
let's say, uh, 200 people that require management. Maybe there's other people in this company that don't necessarily require the type of management that we're talking about. They're higher or they're lower on the totem pole where they're kind of in their own little world like a janitor and, and what have you. I'm not going to put a, a high-level manager over a guy that operates a buffer. And a floor buffer, I mean, right? So let's say in this company of 200 people that I, my, my kind of my top-level managers have about, on average, 20 people working for them. So i got 20 managers. Now, because of technology innovations, Jack Spirico's Jerk Manufacturing Incorporated uh, figures out that we can cut our, our headcount of those type of employees from, one, from 200 to just 100. I can just cut my workflow load in half. How many managers do I need now? Hmm? You mean I'm not if, if you were capable of managing twenty people before, I'm not gonna have you manage ten now, am I? So all of a sudden I cut my management staff in half. Huh. Well, even if you're good, when you lose fifty when well, like fifty percent headcount reduction, even good people go. Sometimes people that are in the top percentage of quality go because of politics at that point. So any of us could end up in a situation where we need new skill sets to be able to transition to something a little different. So for people that are managers, I would think about what are the things that it, the, the technologies that empower and enable management. And, and those are texts to stay up on. And communications and organization is the stuff you need to be looking at. So there's a lot of things now that are being run. You know, we're used to just be an intranet or something like that. Uh, social media-based a lot of work groups are running on things like Slack and things like that. And, and let's say that your company's never going to do that. Well, if you can manage people, you can manage people, including remote teams. A lot of the remote teams and stuff like that are using these texts. So being at least aware of and the basics, because none of it's hard. And this is the one thing about that, that actually makes this better. The reason these types of interactions are being used for remote team interaction and stuff like that is because they're easy. But they do have a different mindset and some different things. And so, you know, taking a, you know, find that it's a legitimate way that workers are really communicating to do real projects first. It's not just some random shit somebody told you about. And then once you know that, going into that tech and learning you know, all the basics of it. How does it work? How do you set up a group? What's it, you know, what are the different types of things that can be set up in it, and what are the different, what does that mean? You know, let's use Facebook, because it's something we're all familiar with. So on Facebook, we can have a page that's our personal page. We can have a page for a business, and we can have a group. Those are your three main types of Facebook pages. Uh, so what are the differences there? Most of you guys know that. That's why I'm using it as an example. Like, personal page is just me. A page page, like a business page, is actually very limited in its reach. Um, but a group enables a lot of different things. Now, if I do a group on Facebook that's private and by invitation only, I'm sure Zuckerberg's listening, but you know, I can do a lot of collaboration through group chat and things like that in Facebook where I don't really need an intranet. You move over to a Facebook competitor trying to get ahead of wind up like MeWe, and they, they for a very low fee have the ability to have a, what they claim anyways 100% secure private groups. 
So that's their actual revenue model. Instead of sell, selling your information to advertisers, they want a company to come in and say, hey, we can, you know, basically this, for, especially for a small company, I want to put a lot of money in, this replaces a secure intranet. We can store files. We can have automatic group chat. There's all types of things that we can do here for five bucks a month. Now, none of this is an endorsement for MeWe, and it certainly isn't an endorsement for Facebook. I'm just talking about understanding that and also understanding things like branding strategies using uh, social media, like, let's say, Instagram, uh, like, let's say, YouTube, because it's going to become more... This is, this is what people need to realize. This has always been the case for competitive advantage. If you ever end up in a situation where you're looking to go work for somebody else... The more you can do for that company from a standpoint of bringing in business, etc., the more valuable you are no matter what position you're trying to apply for. And as the headcount issue becomes more of a thing and there's more and more competition, that's going to become more, and instead of being, well, the way you get the better job is by having at least some modicum of a way that you can help this company reach more customers, it's going to become almost, in some positions, a prerequisite. If you're going to be in management, well, you're going to sort of be in sales or marketing, too, no matter what you're managing. So those are the ways that I would encompass. What is all the technology being used by your company currently? And you should see, that's the thing. If you're a manager... Whatever technology your company is using, whether it's a company intranet, whether it's specialized software, whatever it is, you should be an expert on it. That's, that's number one. You should know the stuff cold. You should be able to sit down and write a basic user's manual without looking anything up and then expand beyond that. So good thoughts. Let's take another one. Hey, Josh. Tyler in Ohio. Uh, in permaculture, it's said that you know, the problem is the solution. Well, how do we apply that to government? Uh, thanks. Have a great day. Bye. Well, let me start out with quoting one of uh, the, the best permaculturists in the world, and I would argue probably the number one permaculturist in the, in the world today, Jeff Lawton. He said one time to me, well, you know, Jack, they say the problem is the solution, and that might be true. But if you're not careful, the problem can be the problem as well. Meaning that not every problem in of itself is a solution or directly is harnessed into a solution. The problem may be the solution or it may be the path to the solution. It may point out the solution. It may be the problem is a restriction and designing around the restriction is the solution. I think that very much is the case with government. And one of the other premier permaculturists in the world who sadly left us a couple of years ago, Toby Hemingway, when we were talking about this and his concept of what's known as liberation permaculture, uh, which is a passive anarchy uh, philosophy, was that you know things that government does revolve around government's ability to quantify things. So when they look at an agricultural field and they want to know how to tax it, they know exactly how to tax it because they can say per acre we can produce X amount of corn or X amount of soy or X amount of wheat, and everything's very, very quantifiable. And that... Uh, if you look at the way we, we do appraisals on even suburban properties, it's very much the same way. What did something else sell for? What are the things that are similar? You know, what, what is the roof made of? How many square feet of house? How many square feet of decking? The year the house was built, etc. And that's how a tax assessor assesses a property. So one of the great ways to in, increase the value of a property in a way that a tax assessor doesn't understand is permaculture. So one solution that permaculture offers 
to you, to government, is in not maybe the reduction of, but the, the kind of the capping somewhat of how much of the value you improve a property the tax assessor gets their hands around. When all they see is a bunch of trees and bushes and vines, it's just a jungle there. There's, they, you're still going to have your taxes go up commensurate with your neighbors, but your quality of life is so much better than theirs. And the actual value of your home, when this is done properly and someone comes in that's a potential buyer, that value is there in equity that's untaxed. That would be one example. There's, and see, this is the problem with such a broad, open question. Maybe, maybe someday we even do a show on this. I kind of feel like we have in the past, honestly. Um, but one of the things I know I've said in the past is that one of the advantages that we have over elected officials is their desire for power. And you think that's terrible, and it is, but the problem being the solution. So elected officials want power, or they wouldn't hold office. Now, you can tell me about your cousin that's a comptroller of a local town or county or something, I, I, whatever. Politicians that make and set policy want power, or they would not go through what it takes to become a politician that is successfully elected. And the, the, the more you move up in political power, i.e., instead of being a town councilman, being a state representative or senator, the more power-hungry that person is. And if they're not in, in individually power-hungry, there are power-hungry people that put them there. And this is an important thing to understand as well. So, for instance, I ran for the Texas State House as a libertarian. I did it because the Libertarian Party asked me to. This is before I even started the Survival Podcast. And I ended up polling at like 12.5%, uh, which was higher than the Democrat because it was such a Republican district. And the only reason they even polled my district is that the incumbent got thrown out. He did something really stupid. He tried to backdoor an income tax into Texas. And the guy had been there like 20 years, and they primaried his ass because of it. This girl running for the Republican side and, and me running for Libertarian and some other person, some dude running for Democrat, who was just there so they had somebody to put on the ticket. He knew he, he didn't even campaign. Well, I campaigned a little bit, got some traction, and, and, and started to poll that way. I got turned in for uh, campaign fraud, which I did not commit, and I still got fined 100 bucks. I filled out a piece of paper wrong. And I was telling this story one night to a friend of mine that I worked with, and our corporate attorney, who was like he was on retainer, says to me, puts his hand on my shoulder, and this felt like one of those movies where the devil shows up and asks you to sign a contract for your soul. He said, well, if you want that seat, let's just run you as a Republican next time, and you can have it. This is a true story, and he was not bullshitting. This guy was well connected. He said, "I know exactly who has that seat down there. She was somebody we, you know, we put there because we needed somebody. I'd like to work with you a lot more. If you want that job, you can have it." This is an elected office. This guy's not bullshitting me. So whether the individual and I, no, no, thank you. Uh, whether the individual is power hungry or the individual is a mouthpiece for the power hungry, they have a power hunger. So. The number one thing they fear is not getting reelected. Now, you not voting for them or not contributing to them or making a phone call to them, that doesn't do very much. It really doesn't. You know what does? When they look stupid in the public eye. Then they or their handlers start to get worried. So when you, when you understand that dynamic and the problem is the solution, principle comes into play when someone is being attacked by government. Sooner or later, there is either an elected official 
causing it or an elected official that could put a stop to it. And making that person look stupid in the public eye is one of the best things you can do to motivate them to do something about it. Because then you get the, 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 because what you're always trying to do politically, whether you're a politician or you're trying to influence politicians, is move the mob. That's, that's the thing. Voting is not what does the thing. The mob does the thing. And so great politicians have understood that a simple wave of the hand can, can create a tsunami in the wave that is the move of the, move of the mob. So you're trying to create enough of the move of the mob that this person that's being persecuted, let's say because she has a front yard vegetable garden, that the town council that put the law in place in the first place starts to look really stupid and the pitch, you know, the metaphorical pitches, pitchforks and, and torches are coming out. So that's, that's another way that that can be done. But I think the biggest thing when you look at the problem as a solution with the government is designing around the restrictions or moving out of the way. So if you're going to punch me and you're bigger than me, and if you punch me, you're going to knock me out. Or at least you're going to hurt me bad enough you're going to get another three or four in and put me down. And then my solution to that is to not get hit. It's to move out of the way. And to maybe let your momentum carry you into the concrete wall so instead of hitting me, you bust your, your hand on the concrete wall. I'm going to kick you in the knee and run away if you're that much bigger than me. And that way I don't have to shoot you. We don't have to go to court over this. You can just go get your hand put together at the ER, right? I might even assist you going into the wall a little bit, but I'm not going to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with you if you're actually bigger and stronger than me. Very, very martial arts type philosophy. With government, we have a lot of ways of doing that. One is that we can break the law in plain sight without it being evident that we're breaking the law, especially when it applies to things like codes and stuff where no one's going to jail, Right? Uh, the other thing that we can do is simply move outside of the area of control that has the restriction, i.e. walking to freedom that we talked about this week. So all of these different ways, and there's probably a thousand more, it all is situationally dependent. It always comes back to the number one way that any permaculture mindset, not just permaculture-based, permaculture mindset question is asked, it depends What exactly is the problem that government is causing? If the problem is you want to be a pig farmer and the piece of property you have is zoned so you can't have pigs on it, you need to go find a piece of property that will let you have pigs. And is changing zoning or changing ordinance possible? Yes, it, it, it does fall short on the scale of permanence, right? So the scale of permanence is things like that mountain is permanent. You're not moving that mountain. It exists. Government regulations are like one tier down from mountains. They're that much trouble to change in the move and influence. And the bigger the governmental body, the more that's true. It is much more difficult to change a national code, let's say in the world of building codes, than a state-level or a county-level code. Many times county and state-level codes, in fact, are just basically reprints of national codes. Especially if the national code doesn't apply here, then the county just grabs that and bullet points it in. You might be able to change that, but you probably won't because the people that put it there in the first place never gave a shit. They just want to cover their ass. So we need to figure out where we can operate the way we want to operate and how can we, how can we get, this is the real thing. How can I get what I want and comply enough with what they say I have to do that they'll leave me alone? 
including even if they come look at it. For instance, Jeff had a situation one time that had to do with water catchment and a bunch of dams and wanting to fit one more dam in. And the problem was that the water that filled the dam came from a different catchment than the dam would discharge. And the solution was a couple sandbags put into a swale that pushed the water back to the original catchment. And the guy that and the neighbor called and bitched because he didn't like what he was doing, period. The, the, the official, this is an Australian official, came out and looked at the property and in the end couldn't even really understand it, but did understand that it worked and wrote a letter that stated, in normal instances, we would employ this man as a consultant. So it ended the situation because he was elegant enough in his design to comply with the requirement and still do what he wanted to do. This is the mindset you have to come out this with. And that's a good question. Let's take another one. This is kind of a, a sad thing to hear, and I'll give you some thoughts on it when I get we get done listening to it. Hey, Jack, this is Leanne in Indiana, and not listening to your show cost me my job. Um, I started a new job after being self-employed for, you know, the last seven years, and the more hours I worked, the less time I had to listen to you. And I had caught a little bit of your CBD episodes, but wasn't paying that much attention due to the hours I was working. And without thinking too much about it, started taking CBD oil for some nerve pain. Worked wonderfully right up until I got drug tested for work and got the results that I was fired for using drugs that I had never used. Um, of course, now, in hindsight, I went back and listened to your episode where you guys said that THC would be in it and not to risk it, and I never would have done it if I'd known. Um, but now I, you know, I've got three kids. I don't, I'm a single mom. I wouldn't have done this if I had thought for a second it was going to cause a problem, but I bought it at the grocery store, and the lady I talked to, who seemed to know a lot about it, didn't mention any of this. Um, the bottle didn't say there was THC in it. I j it just never dawned on me. So now I'm trying to figure out how do I go about finding more work when I just got fired for failing a drug test. Do I have to tell people this? or I, I Well, I do know that we covered this issue many times. Like every time we talked about it, we also said this is a concern, and if you – work with, you know, uh, drug testing that you probably shouldn't. In spite of that, I feel like crap about this. Because it's probably the case that even though you didn't hear that, you probably did at least become aware of it or maybe be more open to it because it was on our show. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry, and I wish, you know, maybe there's some way I could have been more upfront about it. But honestly, when we first went down this road and people asking for information on it, I never even really thought about it. Um, going down to a grocery store, picking something up that's going to make you pop positive on a drug test. I'm going to say, first of all, I would look to see if there's any legal or diplomatic recourse to the company that fired you uh, with being retested, um, assuming you've discontinued use of it or you discontinue now. Uh, and, 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 it, and I'm sure you explained this to them, and whether they were open to it or listened to it or not, I, I don't know. It depends who they are and, and, and where the policy comes from. But um, to me... Being fired from your job for use of a completely legal substance that's available at a grocery store seems like a violation of your rights as a worker, and you're at least able, you should be at least afforded some sort of recourse. Now, whether it's worth it or not, I, I don't know. And I, whether you can get an attorney that's even going to go down that road with you, I don't know. 
Um, but it may be worth at least pushing back a little bit on and see what happens. Next up, do you have any obligation to tell a future employer that you were fired because you failed a drug test? No. Not at all. You didn't commit any crime. You don't have any kind of criminal record. Um, honestly, if I were you at this point, you didn't work there very long. It causes more questions than answers. In, in a resume, a CV, uh, an application, I just wouldn't even include it that you work there. I would leave it as though you, you're, you're looking for a job that you're still self-employed. And it's just not working out. Now you need to go. But the, the, I would go at this the way you got this job in the first place. If it brings no value to you, you're no, uh, no under no obligation to tell them you ever worked there. Um, for everybody else, man, if you're going to use CBD and you have a work environment that has any potential for this, you need to have a discussion with HR before you use it. And I think a lot of you guys, if we we're talking about management and stuff like that, especially you that, that are never going to use it. Um, in companies, you need to have a discussion with HR about it for your employees. Let's think about this a little bit differently. I hire this person. They're doing a great job for me. I have no complaints. I'm like, yes, I found the person for this job. My life is so much better. I hire 20 people a year, and I fire 18 of them, and two of them I keep, and usually those two are like, damn, these guys suck too, but they're the best I can get. This time I hit a home run, I have got somebody I can really depend on. And two weeks later, they are taken away from me because they used basically a supplement that has no impact whatsoever on their ability to do their job. Companies need to start accepting the new reality. Even if they, you are in a state where they have legalized recreational marijuana, and, you're, and I can understand your company saying, I, I don't agree with it, but I can understand your company saying, hey, you want to work here, you don't use marijuana. When it comes to CBD products, there needs to be some level of intelligence as to what is going on and some way that an employee, without fear of retribution, can say, hey, I have nerve pain. I'm consider using this completely legal thing. I will not be using it while at work. You know, it does not have any kind of effect that impairs my judgment or ability to use my job. And I want to be on record that I'm using this thing and they should be able to bring that up without fear of retribution before they even act. And that's why people don't do it. So I think that we need to start having a new reality. And those of you that are in positions of authority, or at least influence within your companies. need to start bringing these discussions up now before you end up losing somebody that's really good at what they do that you worked your ass off to bring onto your team. Because this stuff happens and it's going to keep happening. And it's, it, it, is, it is mindless nonsense that's causing it. It's mindless bureaucracy that's causing it. But it's a real thing. And I'm, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Go out and get a better job. Uh, if it involves drug testing, don't use this stuff unless they have common sense the way that they handle it. And and I would just leave it leave it off the table. What have you been doing? I've been trying to find a job. Because I feel no obligation to tell you about past employment that I have unless it benefits me as an applicant. And I know some people might have an ethical problem with that. I don't know what your problem is. I You know, really. I don't know what your problem is. Now, if there's any kind of questions like, have you ever been fired from a job? 
That gets into where, you know, you're, you're lying if you say no, and if they find out, you know, it can cost you the job, but you probably weren't going to get the job anyway if you were honest. I mean, there's, there's a point where not that you need to know about is what's in your head when you answer the question. Um, generally speaking, those questions involve something like for committing a crime or something like that as well. Because really, it's not a future employer's business by the law where you worked or what you did other than if you tell them that so for the, the purpose of filling in time gaps or uh, establishing experience that they can verify that you really did have a job as you know so and so such and such a thing at such and such a place for this period of time in fact when they contact prior employers you're allowed to tell them when they started working and when they left that's pretty much it you know and did they really have the job they said they had. That's about it. Now, employers get around this by asking for references and things like that. You can ask a personal or professional reference questions that you can't ask an HR person at Corporation XYZ. But uh, most jobs, you don't put it down, they're not going to ask about it, so I wouldn't. That's that's my opinion. Uh, if you get into something where there's very specific questions, then you got to work it out at, at that level. Uh, let's take another one. This one on guns. Hey, Jack. It's Dan in Southern Alberta again. Just first of all, I want to say thanks for everything you do. But second, I wanted to make a quick comment about um, some hunting rifles you talked about way in the past. I have a Ruger American Ranch in 762 by 39 and it is amazing. I recommend everybody have one of these. First of all, it's in 762 by 39 so cheap ammo. Two, fantastic little deer rifle throw a muzzle brake on it and you can't even feel the recoil. It's better, it's less recoil than than you would imagine. Um, the, the Ruger American line is, is so awesome, so versatile. Um, I'm looking at actually getting rid of two of my other hunting rifles and, and upgrading to a Ruger American Predator in 308 and, and I found nothing but good things about it. It's so versatile, um, modular, uh, there's tons of accessories. So if anyone's out there looking for a, a new deer rifle, the 7629 and uh, and um, the 308 and 243 and whatever you want. The Ruger American lineup is great. And I don't get paid to say this. I'm just saying it because it's my experience. Is, it's been a fantastic little rifle. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Um, I, I don't know that I would come down on the side of everyone should own one, but I think there's certainly one that everyone might, might, might want to look at, especially people that are gun people that like to have lots of cool uh, and different stuff. Um, the 762 by 3.9, I, I can imagine the recoil on that has to be all of about nothing. The rifle itself is pretty light. It's about six pounds, six and a half pounds uh, with a scope on it. But it's a very light recoiling round, and it's a very well-designed, ergonomically designed rifle. So even though there can be a little bit of recoil off of that round, it, it's it's just so so gentle, honestly. Uh, another thing I'd throw out is for the Ruger American series, uh, Ranch series in general, um, the Boyd's Gun Stocks does make custom stocks in just about every configuration for them. Uh, I have a Ruger 77 357 that was a gift to me by a dear friend, and uh, I put a Boyd's uh, thumbhole stock on it, and it is a different gun. I have to say that, in general, Ruger's bolt guns I find to be underrated by everybody who doesn't have one. For the money, they are one of the best out-of-the-box bolt-action guns you can get your hands on. 
Uh, I would say for the money, they, they in general, not every particular gun and every particular option, but kind of your middle of the road as it sits off the shelf, uh, I actually find them in general to have better quality than Remington or Winchester. And I know some people just got really mad at me, but I'm sorry. It's just just my opinion. I have a lot to add to this other than I do think that 7.62.39, which is the, the round that was made famous by the AK-47, is a little bit underrated in what it's capable of doing from a standpoint of deer size game with the right bullets under the right limitations. And that the Ruger American Ranch is one of those rifles that makes a hell of a behind the, the, the truck seat gun, especially for people that are you know dealing with what's right in the name, people that are on ranches and rural land and stuff like that where you never know what you need to reach for or what reason you might have for it. It's kind of hard for me to say that if you needed something like that, um, that to look away from semi-autos, but I understand that may be more difficult in Canada where the collar's from. Um, you know, but honestly, when you look at the American Ranch bolt guns, they are really a bolt-action version of Mini 30 in this case, the, the 7.62 is. So, um It, it may be that Ruger made that primarily uh, for customers who, for one reason or another, the uh, the, the Mini 30 was out of the question. Price, uh, government regulation as a general thing, or government regulation as it pertains to sporting use. Because there are states where it's completely legal to own a semi-auto rifle, but it's not legal to hunt uh, you know medium-sized games such as whitetails with. So... Uh, that could be their motivation. It, it, it'd be hard to get me, uh, if money wasn't an object, to choose the American Ranch over a Mini 30. It, it just it just would be. Though, if I was buying it for a kid, it wouldn't be. Okay, there's you know, it, it's much easier to teach a new shooter shot placement and discipline and all that stuff. If every time we take a shot, we have to work that bolt. That's why I always recommend you start new shooters out when you move them into like move them out of air rifles and stuff like that into a 22 with a bolt action 22 with iron sights, and then we can go to a low fixed power scope once we get basic gun handling, and then we can look at things like the 1022 or a Marlin Model 70 and things like that. So that's my thoughts. Let's take one more. I got a question here on making cider. This will apply to mead. It'll apply to about anything that you would ever want to do this to if you're for making an adult fermented beverage. Hey, Jack. I need some advice on making a citrus-infused cider. Background. I'm attending a group camping trip in a couple of months and would like to bring a cider for everyone to try. The group said they'd love something citrusy as a bunch of us tried a lemon ginger cider from a local cidery last summer and really enjoyed it. Any advice on how to add the citrus flavor and potential flavor combinations so I don't screw this up would be helpful. I make a lot of cider, but only have time to make this once before the trip. Thanks, Eric and Austin. Well, hey, Eric, man. Uh, here's the deal. You can just do what you probably are thinking, which is use, you know, orange or lemon or something like that, add it into your cider. The danger is this. When we ferment... Citrus juice. I don't care if it's orange juice. What happens is that we strip all the sugar out of it, and it's very, very sour. Very, very tart, and very, very hit you in the face. Additionally, um, the more of the pith 
that we include, the more bitterness can, can be extracted, the longer we leave it in the primary fermenter and don't get it off of there. So if you're going to use whole orange pieces or something like that, kind of think about that and you, you, you want to, you know, within like a week, let's go ahead and rack, even if we're still in an active fermentation to a secondary, and let's let that play itself out. Um, here's my opinion. Having made an awful lot of meads that use some level of citrus is rely on zest. So I recommend a little tool called a microplane zester for the kitchen for a lot of reasons. And one is for zesting citrus fruit, whether it's lime. Here's a little side. Um, when I make margaritas, I take a couple of the first limes that we're going to juice to make our margaritas with, and I zest them. And I mix that zest with salt. And I let it kind of bind with the salt for a while. And then when you rim your glass with salt, you rim it with a lime salt. It's awesome. Um, so a lot of things you can do with this tool. I'll put a link in the review that I have for it in the show notes today. But I'd recommend that you rely more on zest than juice in the fruit itself. Now you're going to get the oils. You're going to get the flavor. You're going to get the impact of the citrus flavor without fermenting a ton of the juice. Let's look at... One of the best-known meads out there, a lot of people start with this mead, is their first small-batch mead called Joe's Ancient Orange Mead. And it uses, you make a half-gallon, if you follow the original Joe's Ancient Orange recipe, it was for a half-gallon, uh, and it used a half an orange. And half an orange to the half a gallon. So it's about an orange to the gallon. I think that, you know, you can go about there with lemons. If they're really small, then we can go with two but we don't want to go higher than that. This is what I would do. Formulate your recipe, and I would go no more than one fruit per gallon. Okay? And what I would do is I would zest the fruit, and I would zest probably, if you're going to use, let's say you're going to make a gallon, you're going to use one, and I would really encourage you to consider trying Meyer lemon for this. A lemon ginger made with Meyer lemon, you might that might be really good in a cider. So get yourself a Meyer lemon, zest it, cut it into wedges, and then take your knife and cut the fruit out. Don't squeeze it. Go ahead and cut the whole fruit out, but leave all the white part behind. So like you're filleting a fish and you're leaving the skin behind type of thing, leave that white part behind, cut it out, and drop your whole pieces into your fermenter. And again, one lemon per gallon. You can use lemon, you can use orange, whatever you want. If it's oranges and they're really big oranges, maybe drop to half an orange a gallon. Again, with the pith removed and the entire fruit, everything goes in. And before you cut the orange or the lemon or whatever you're going to use, zest it. Zest the second one, do something else with that fruit and use the zest of two of that fruit per gallon and you'll probably end up with something you'll really like. And, and that's kind of my formula. With I, I have not done a lemon or orange cider. Uh, all I've done is lemon or orange-infused meads, but that's the formula I've used. Um, I will tell you this. A lot of the ciders that are out there, uh, Austin East Ciders has come up with some really good stuff, and now they're coming up with some really stupid stuff. Um, and they're kind of like a consumer-level product here out of Austin, Texas. Um, they have a blood orange. And I can tell you right now how that's done. And it ain't what I just said. They are stopping fermentation, killing the yeast, and back-sweetening that cider with blood orange juice. Probably a filtered blood orange juice so that it's a clear product. 
And I would say by looking at it, they might even be using a little bit of food coloring. So that is the other option. You can you can kill the fermentation and kill the yeast off, uh, and and then back sweeten with a citrus juice. Just not my cup of tea. Before I would do that, before I would do that, I would make a really great cider that's designed to be made into a shanty. So the shanties, uh, there's an old beer thing with, with beers, and it really came heavily out of like Minnesota and Michigan and places like that, where you take beer and you mix it with a little orange juice or a little lemonade or something like that, and you know use it like a good like a wheat beer, like a raspberry wheat, and then bring a little lemon to the party. And and I would I would make the side if I if I wanted to put some sweetness in it and all, I would rather let's go ahead and add a little bit when we drink it. And that way, if we end up with a really good cider and we don't like how it tastes with lemon, we, we tested a little glass of it and we didn't like it. If it needs a little more, we add it. It needs a little less. Next time we mix one, we use a little less. Um, and, and, and that way, if, if it just doesn't work out, we, we lost a glass, not a batch. So those are my different approaches to doing that. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. want to remind you again that episode 2500 of the show is coming. And episode 2500 is where you get to call in and tell me why I'm a jerk. And it's, I need you guys to call, man. I need some jerk calls. Uh, this is where you call in and say, hey, Jack, you're such a jerk because of you. And then you fill that in with the good things that you've done because of the influence that Survival Podcast and our communities uh, and sub-communities have had in your life. The jerk line, 877-644-1345. 877-644-1345. Eight seven seven six four four one three four five. Call the jerk line. Be part of history by being part of episode twenty five hundred. Remember, if you want to help support our show, one of the really easy ways to do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you help support the survival podcast and the work that we do, even if it's something you're going to buy anyway. But we also do put up daily reviews, and sometimes we bring things back around multiple times. Uh, over time, I've probably reviewed about 300 products. Uh, every single one of them, I own it, I've used it, I've spent my money on it, and if I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't recommend that you do it. Today's one that's kind of evolved. I first got this product well over two years ago. It's the it's a it's something for you fishermen out there. The Akuma Avenger bait feeder reels. Uh, I mean, I love these these fishing reels. I originally got one in a barter on the barter blanket about two and a half years ago. Uh, it was an ABF 65, a little bit larger of a reel. Uh, I have used it for big catfish. I have used it for big, uh, big surfish down on the, on the coast of Texas. It has worked fantastic for that. When I first got it, I'm like, this is a really cool thing. I wonder about their other sizes. And if you've listened to me talk about fishing before, my family uh, has handed down the tradition of using Mitchell fishing reels since well before I was born, since the early 60s. There's been Mitchell 300 fishing reels in the hands of Spearco's. I've got some original ones made in France from the 50s that I bought off eBay and refurbished. That's how much I love Mitchell Reels. Almost pains me to say it because it's like an ending of an era type thing, but I have standardized on new reels. I buy Akuma Avenger Reels. Uh, for the price, they are one of the finest reels on the market. Uh, you're talking about you know a reel that, depending on the options that you're, you're, you're buying it, is a, a $45 to $60 reel. I, I would put them up against a lot of reels that sell for 200 bucks. The big thing about them, and they were one of the first to have it, now there's a lot of people doing it, but the bait feeder, that's what ABF stands for, 
uh, bait feeder. And the way it works is there's a little switch on the back of the reel. And this allows for two different drag settings. And the one, you set the drag really, really light. And that way, if a fish takes it, it just takes drag like with a bait casting reel. And when you turn the crank a half turn, it flips that switch up, kind of like it flips the bail back on a spinning reel, but it just flips that switch, and it switches to your second drag setting, which is where you have it set to where you would be fighting a fish. This lets you set up a rod in a rod holder, a Y-stick, whatever, keep your line tight, have that nice tight line, and when a fish takes it, you hear it, but the fish doesn't feel it, and that way you can let the fish take line, and it's a fantastic way to do things. Before this, this is what I, if you don't have one of these, you're not going to buy one. Let me tell you my secret that I used to use to do this, sort of. It's nowhere near as good, but it works. You take your reel off of your rod. You can leave it, if it's strung up, you leave it strung up. Take a, just a plain old rubber band and double band it and put it on the, the handle of your fishing rod in front of the reel seat. Okay? And then put the reel back on. And then when you cast your rod out, What you do is you set your rod wherever you want it, and you, you tighten your line, tuck the line into the rubber band, and then open the bail on your reel. And if you've done it right, there's a little tension with the reel so it won't spill off with wind, and then when a fish takes it, he'll just pull the line out from under the rubber band, and usually if you're sitting there, you usually hear like you'll hear it go. That was what I did. The other old country boy trick we used to do is you get your rod set up in a Y, you know, you get a stick with a Y in it, and you stick it in the ground, and you set your rod up, you take a rock, a little rock, you know, like a pebble, or you know, a little bit bigger than a pebble, you set it on your line so it's nice and tight, holding it to the ground, and then you open your bale. And then when the fish takes it, it pulls it out from under, and it can, it can run. The problem with that is sooner or later you do get wind that pull, starts spooling rod off, you know, line off your reel, or fish takes a little bit and you don't notice it. With these, that's a done deal. And it, if that was all it was... These reels would be fantastic, but they are one of the smoothest operating reels I've ever used. The ABF 30 is kind of the all-around reel. It's not too big. It's not too small. It's just something you would pair with like a light to medium light action rod up to like a medium action rod. In spite of the fact that I have a really beautiful rod made by Black Pelican Custom Rods uh, and an ABF 65 I have it paired up with that I fished down in Texas with, When I drive down there, when I travel to Florida every year and fish the surf out there, I don't want to pack my big... I used to have this big tube you put rods in, and you check it, and what happens is even if you fly first class, you end up waiting forever for that thing to come out of bag check, and it, it just takes time away from your vacation. So I went to fishing with a multi-piece uh, travel rod, and I've paired it up with the ABF 30, and I have caught fish over 20 pounds on that reel and not felt outgunned. It is a fantastic all-around reel. You want to go to light action, almost ultra-light action, the ABF-20 is great. The other models in the series I haven't used, but uh, they've got to be great. The, the 40, the 50, and the 90 all have to be great because the 20, the 30, and the 65 are awesome. Check it out. Uh, you, you guys know fishing is something I'm, I am passionate about and I'm particular with. Uh, I'm not one of these guys that's all high-end, and all my all my reels are $500 reels, and all my rods are $1,000 rods. I'm not that guy. I like consumer-grade stuff I can recommend, and that I don't have to go to the poorhouse to be able to afford, but I want it to be almost as good as the really expensive stuff. 
That's why I was a fan of Mitchell's from the time I was a little boy until I found these. If you can get me to turn in my Mitchell 300, and I still think it's a fantastic reel, but if you can get me to choose something over a Mitchell 300 when it comes to an all-around reel, you've done something right. Akuma has done it with the ABF series. Check them out. That brings us to our song of the day, Steve Miller Band Week. We are one day away from wrapping them up with our final Steve Miller Band song, but today we have what I think might be their most known song of all time. Rockin' Me. Steve Miller Band's song, Rockin' Me. Rockin' Me is a kind of silver-tongued devil, you know? He's traveling all over the country playing his music and telling his girl back home not to worry about nothing. I mean, that's really what it is. Um, so, there, you know, there is that to it. The other thing is, Steve Miller was really cognizant of the value of music, especially at the time for road trips. This might be one of the best road trip kind of guitar riff, cool-sounding, fast-moving songs that's ever been written. He's also a big old rip-off artist. You know, a lot of times you listen to a song and you say, I think that this guy, when he did this song and he had that instrumental in it, he took that idea from this song over here and he's a big old rip-off artist and he, took, he stole that music from somebody else. Uh, anybody that's listened to this song and has listened to Freeze All Right Now says, gee, there's a, there's a lot of similarities in these songs. Well, uh, Miller, Steve Miller himself wrote the song and the music for it, and he copped. Just, I did it. He copped to lifting the guitar riff out of All Right Now from Free, which was played by Freeze guitarist uh, Paul Kossoff. Uh, so it, it is a ripoff, but it's a ripoff with an acknowledgement. And I think to a degree, all music is ripoff after a certain point. Most things that can be done have been done. It's how we arrange them and put them back together. Everybody works with the same number of chords. And uh, in most instances, the same number of strings on a guitar. Uh, with that, this is a good song. I almost, I almost second-guessed John Adam and... Uh, took yet tomorrow's song and pulled it today and put this song for tomorrow just because this is such of a great song. I know a lot of you guys listen to me uh, on the way home from work. Uh, so Friday, coming home from work, this would be a great song. Hopefully it be a great song for you for Thursday for coming home from work. Keep on rocking me, baby, with Steve Miller Band. It's been Jack Spearco, another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.